chapter 18, beginning at the first verse, that's page 904, if you've one of these. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Who do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the world, the word that had, he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of these man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard what I have said to them. They know what I have said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand and said, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, 
if what I have said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I have said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once a rooster crowed. Nigel, thank you for reading for us. Well, we begin this morning our Easter series. And so over the next three weeks, uh, three Sundays and uh, the Thursday and Friday of Easter week, we're going to be looking at the story of Jesus' death and resurrection in John's Gospel. And you may have noticed just on our publicity for at the Easter events, that we've gone for the simple title of Eternal Life. And you may think, couldn't we come up with a snappier title than that? Well, um, we're not that creative. But, but also, Eternal Life really is the theme of John's Gospel. That's what John tells us is his aim um, for what he's written. Just turn with me for uh, a moment to chapter 20. Uh, just flick over the page. Chapter 20, verse 30. John tells us why he's written his book. Verse 30, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So there we have it. John's not included everything that Jesus said or did, and you'll notice that as we go through. Some things will be a little bit different in John than they are to the other gospel accounts. Not contradictory, just different things that he's left out and different things that he's included. He's chosen his material specifically with one goal in mind, that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. Notice how high the stakes are. This is something which every person needs to grapple with John tells us that the way to life, the way to eternal life, is through faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Everything we read in the Easter account over these next few weeks is written so that that might be true for all of us. Let's pray. Let's pray with that in mind. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Lord, we thank you for the Gospel of John, and at this coming Easter time, it's our desire that we, as those who believe in Jesus, are reminded and encouraged that all the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us through his death and resurrection has indeed secured for us eternal life in his name. It's our desire too, though, Father, that many people, not just those of us here this morning, but many people in our community and among our families and friends, that they too will come to believe in Jesus and receive that gift of eternal life also. And so we pray through this gospel, as we study it together, would you work in our lives and in our church and in our community to bring us all to a deep conviction of faith 
and the eternal life that follows. In Jesus' name, amen. So with that as the scene for the whole book, let's turn to uh, chapter 18. What do we learn from uh, John chapter 18, just the first half this morning? It's on page 904. What we're going to see is the rejection of Jesus. He is betrayed, arrested, tried, denied. And we're going to start, we're just going to go through the story together. I want us to see in our mind's eye the drama of the events of this night before Jesus' death. So we'll track our way through the story. And then when we've done that, I'd like us then to come back to the beginning and we'll see what we learn from these events. And just two things, the identity of Jesus and the purpose of Jesus. So the rejection of Jesus, that's the whole story. Then the identity and the purpose of Jesus. So first of all, his rejection. Where are we in the gospel? Well, Jesus has been speaking to his disciples in the upper room of a house in Jerusalem. And the last five or six chapters have been recording that for us. He's been preparing them for his death and for what will follow. In chapter 17, he prays for them. And then this is what happens next. Verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, that's his prayer, perhaps the whole of the upper room um, conversation. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Now back in chapter 13, as they sat around the meal table earlier on in the evening, Jesus had predicted Judas's betrayal. And now it comes to pass. But notice that Jesus doesn't run from it. He deliberately goes to a remote place where he knows Judas can find him. Throughout the, the gospel, the Jewish leadership have been trying to get rid of Jesus, but the problem has been for them that they can't do it quietly. They can't do anything in the city because that would cause an uproar. And so now at night and in this walled garden on the slopes of the Mount of Olives, Jesus has provided them with their opportunity, an opportunity to take him without a fuss. Now that said, Judas is still accountable for his actions. Judas has sold his soul and Jesus is betrayed by one of his closest followers. Next we see Jesus arrested. And again, Jesus' actions are pretty remarkable here. Instead of running from the danger, he walks towards it. Verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. 
Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken, of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Now we'll come back later on and we'll think about what this reveals about Jesus' identity. But for now, in the flow of events, let's just see what happens. Jesus makes sure of two things here. First, that they arrest the right man. There's no mistake, he is Jesus of Nazareth. He's the one they're looking for. And two, he secures his disciples' safety. He's thinking of them, he's protecting them, tells the soldiers to let them go, and in so doing keeps his father's will that none of them should be lost. The picture we're given is Jesus is firmly in control of events. He's the one driving things. But then Peter, verse 10, good old Peter, uh, he decides bravely, um, but quite foolishly, to take things into his own hands. I'm not really sure what he hopes to achieve here. He's a fisherman with a kind of long knife, and he's up against a gang of soldiers and temple guards with multiple weapons, we're told. But he feels that he needs to have a go. And he's brave, let's give him that, but he is stupid. He makes a complete hash of it. Uh, he cuts off poor old Malchus's ear. Um, just as an aside, notice the eyewitness details in verse 10. He's called Malchus, he's the high priest's servant, and it's his right ear, not his left ear, uh, that gets lopped off. It's clearly written by someone who saw it happen and who knew the people involved. Jesus is clear with Peter that this is the wrong course of action. He doesn't want him to intervene. And so we see Jesus willingly allow himself to be arrested and to be bound and then taken to the house of Annas. So can you see it? In your mind's eye, can you see it? The hillside outside Jerusalem, in the darkness, the gang of armed men, torches and weapons in hand, Jesus approaching them, them falling back on the ground as he speaks, and then a scuffle breaking out between Peter and Malchus, Jesus calming things down before suggesting that they arrest him. His hands being bound and him being led away alone into the darkness, back down the slope towards the city. It's full of drama, isn't it? But at the centre, calmly orchestrating events is Jesus. Not Judas, not the soldiers, not the chief priests, but Jesus. He's in charge. Now verse 12 to 13. Here we get a detail that John alone of the Gospel writers includes. This character, Annas. Now, Annas, uh, we know from the historical records, he himself had been high priest um, a decade or so earlier, but he was deposed by the then Roman governor. But he's remained a powerful man. Uh, five of his sons would become uh, high priest after him. And now his son-in-law, Caiaphas, he's the high priest that year. So Annas is a, he's a little bit like a mafia don. He's like kind of Don Corleone or um, Tony Soprano. He's kind of the head of the family that runs the city. Caiaphas is the kind of public face. He's going to be the one to make the formal application to Pilate to have Jesus killed. But nothing happens without Annas' say-so. He's pulling the strings. 
And so having been arrested, it is to his house we travel next. Now John is a masterful writer and he splices these two scenes together. It's like a, like a film, like a great film. We move back and forth from the fire in the courtyard outside to the trial inside. But first, the, zem, the, the lens of the camera, it zooms in on Simon Peter and another disciple, probably John's way of talking about himself in verse 15. So here's the first camera shot. Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple, probably John. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, that's referring there to Annas, um, not Caiaphas, since he was known to Annas, he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest, kind of courtyard outside Annas' house. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. See, the other unnamed disciple, he's got access to Annas' household through a, a friend or a family member. He's known to the servant girl on the gate. And clearly she knows of this disciple's allegiance to Jesus and it seems that she thinks it's a little bit on the crazy side. Verse 17. The servant girl, servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? you know, even today we might get a question like that from our work colleagues or from our family, mightn't we? Now, really? You're not one of those Jesus followers, are you? And here's the first denial. It comes so easily, just a simple little lie to get inside. No doubt it's justified in Peter's mind. He said, I am not. How easy it is for those words to slip out when under pressure. A first denial. But then we leave Peter by the fire. He's outside in the dark in the cold night. And the camera switches. It switches to the trial inside the house. Now this trial, it's got no legal standing at all. In fact, it's actually illegal. Um, it's taking place at night. It's got no defence witnesses there at all. And it's clear that they've come to a verdict before the trial starts. But a trial it is. Annas questions Jesus as a judge. Verse 19 the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I notice again here that though Jesus is asked about his disciples and his teaching, he only answers about his teaching. So again, he's protecting his disciples, isn't he? Remember, there are two of them. They're just outside in the courtyard, in the vicinity. Arrests could easily be made. So Jesus draws the attention to himself and keeps them out of it. So even as his death gets close, he's still thinking of them. He's still thinking of saving them. But he does answer about his teaching. And he's pretty direct, isn't he? Doesn't that strike you? Verse 20. Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who've heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. 
See, Jesus is no wimpish victim. He knows that they're seeking to trap him in his words. They're looking for a confession of illegality. They can take that to the Roman authorities. They've been at that for some time now in this gospel. He knows they're not really interested in what he says. And so he's bullish in his response. Look, my teaching's on record. All those people, you can ask them. They were listening. And this response infuriates them. And it leads to violence. When he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? It's a nasty lashing out. But it's also a response of someone who cannot make a good case, which Jesus then points out. He's on the attack again. Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? And they're silent. Their silence is pretty telling, isn't it? There's nothing they can say. They've got nothing. And so they progress things. This trial is over, but there's more to come. Annas then sends him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now at this point, we're eager to get to the next bit of the story. We want to know what happens to Jesus. But before we find out what happens, John wants to remind us of something else. The camera, it comes back once more to the fire outside. And we see Peter there, and perhaps Peter is seen more clearly. Perhaps as he comes into the light of the fire, his face becomes more visible, and he just starts to ring a bell with people. Verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off. See the danger getting elevated? He asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter again denied it. And at once a cock crowed. All four of the Gospels record Peter's sad failure Earlier on, back in chapter 13, he'd been fervent in his commitment to Jesus. He claimed he was ready to die. He said, I will lay down my life for you. But Jesus knew that he would fail. He answered him, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the cock will not crow till you have denied me three times. And now this prediction comes true. There are really two trials going on in chapter 18. Peter, in a sense, is on trial as well. He's being questioned. But unlike Jesus, who holds to the truth and defends his disciples, Peter lies and denies his Lord. It's really sad. But it's not the last word for him. There is a future for him. Forgiveness, restoration, comes in John chapter 21. But we don't see that now. In the moment, we're left in the darkness with Peter. We leave him here. We don't see him again till the end of the gospel. 
Jesus' closest friend, his most fervent follower, has failed him and abandoned him to his fate. And Jesus will go it alone from here. This is the story of John 18, betrayed, arrested, tried, denied. Isaiah the prophet predicted centuries before a suffering servant who is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. John said of him at the start of this gospel in John chapter 1, the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. John 18 is a snapshot of the story of humanity's rejection of Jesus Christ. To these folks in the story, they're doing what we've all done. We, we turn away from him because we love the world more, as Judas did. We put him on trial, in effect, as Annas did. We question his right to rule over us. We refuse to listen to his teaching. We hope for an opportunity to get rid of him. And when push comes to shove, even the best of us, even those of us who see much to love in Jesus, we fail to be faithful to him when we are put on trial by the world, just as Peter did. To this story of human rejection of Jesus, we're left without much hope in humanity. Our God came to us and we rejected him. But that's not all that's happening here. We've come through the story. Let's return to the beginning and just pay attention to Jesus. So we'll look closely at him. We're going to see what we learn about his identity and his purpose. So first of all, his identity. Now we've already noticed that when Judas and the soldiers approached in the garden in verses 4 and 5, that Jesus goes out to meet them. Um, and that, that when he asked them, whom do you seek? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. I am he, Jesus replies. He, he's making sure that they get the right man. But I'm sure that you notice too the strange reaction of those who came to arrest him. Verse 6. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Strange, isn't it? There, there they are. They've got weapons in their hands, torches big gang of them but this word from Jesus they stagger back and fall to the floor what's going on well Jesus is claiming more than just his human identity as Jesus of Nazareth he's taking on his lips the divine identity I am I am is how God identifies himself to Moses at the burning bush. I am who I am. I exist. I have no beginning and no end. I am always the same. I am. And several times in this gospel, Jesus makes this state, the same statement. It is a claim to be God. 
The response of his enemies here, this drawing back and falling over, that's not to say that they understood all of what was going on when Jesus said this. John said at the start of his gospel, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. But nonetheless, their reaction is the reaction of those who encounter the living God. When God appears to people throughout the scriptures, people fall to the floor. Such is his awesome power and authority. There's something of that about this incident. Just glimpsed for a moment, they are overawed by him. They've come to arrest Jesus of Nazareth, who is the great I am, the God of the universe in human flesh. That's his identity. Now, second and final thing to notice this morning, the purpose of Jesus. As we saw, one thing that John is keen to point us to is Jesus' absolute control of events. He goes to a place where he knows Judas will find him. Verse 4 tells us that he knew all that would happen to him. He understands what's going on. He knows he'll be betrayed and arrested and tried and denied. In the trial scene, he's not passive. He's pushing things. He, he knows these events will lead to his death. He knows, and yet he still goes. Now ask yourself, why would anyone do that? I mean, you and I, we'd, we'd run for the hills, wouldn't we? But he doesn't. He walks towards his death. Why? Well, the answer's in verse 11. Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Here's what drives the Lord Jesus. Here's what gives him his purpose. Here's what gives him his resolute determination to go to the cross. It's love of his Father. It's obedience to the Father's will. It's his commitment to the great plan to save humanity from their sins. The cup is the symbol of God's wrath in the Old Testament. If you can remember back to Obadiah, we looked at this a few weeks ago, God said that a day was coming when the nations would drink down his wrath. Psalm 75 puts it like this. In the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Isaiah calls it the cup of staggering. It's an image of someone who's so drunk that they collapse under its influence. In other words, the cup destroys a person. It's an image of judgment. Jesus' statement to Peter in verse 11 shows us that he knows that the Father has sent him for this purpose. His Father has given him the cup of his wrath against his sinful people, to drain that cup in the place of his people. When Jesus goes to the cross, he will drink down the cup of the wrath of God, he will drain it to the dregs, 
And in so doing, he will save his people from having to do so on the day of judgment. He substitutes himself into our place, as ironically Caiaphas had put it once, verse 14, so that one man might die for the people. Or as John put it earlier in his gospel, his most famous verse, so that those who believe in him might not perish, but have eternal life. This is his purpose, to drain the cup of God's judgment. As we approach Easter, we come to consider this portrait of Jesus Christ. Maybe for the first time in your life, you're interested in finding out who Jesus is. Perhaps you sense in your heart that Jesus is asking you the question that he asked those who come to arrest him. Whom do you seek? Who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth? Well, yes, you'll find him, but who is he? Jesus of Nazareth is the God-man, the I Am. And what was his purpose? Why did he come? Well, here's the answer that this gospel account presents to us that he's the one who determined that he must go to the cross in the will of his Father to drink the cup of God's wrath for us. He did that so that we, by faith in him, in his death for us and his resurrection, that we might gain forgiveness of sins and eternal life in his name. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this account of the last night of Jesus' life before he was crucified. We thank you for all that it reveals to us about who Jesus is. We thank you that it shows us that he is both fully God and fully man. And we thank you too what it reveals to us about what he did and why he did it, that he went to save his people We praise you that he drains the cup of your wrath at the cross so that we never need to. We thank you that by believing in him, we can have life in his name. For all this, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.